Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, in TorontoMotorsports.com. Got a special episode for you here with my friend Trevor Green Smith, who in his mid 20s has just completed a journey that began in his teens. Great, great desire to reach Formula One. And so, having known Trevor for a good long while, tried to help wherever I could, but he's one with the talent who has moved along to every step of the way. Thought it might be interesting to talk about his life and his career path, his educational choices, and how, for a kid who wanted to work in Formula One, the technical side, he's headed to a Formula One team, which we don't mention because that's up to him and the team to declare whenever that time might be. But knowing that he has indeed achieved his dream of going to work for a Formula One team in a very important engineering role, figured this might be something for those of you who harbor a dream like Trevor's to reach Formula One. Could also be IndyCar, NASCAR, IMSA, wherever else, top level of the sport. It's not so specific to just Formula One that that's the only thing to learn here, but that is where he's going. So sat down with Trevor, spent a little bit more than an hour trying to find out how he made this happen. Obviously having worked in motor racing for most of my adult life, on the team side in IndyCar and other series here in North America. A lot of similar roles he and I have worked in that we can have some common experiences to share in this conversation. Just wanted to walk through this. And so I'm not saying it's a perfect roadmap of how to get to Formula One or an upper echelon series, but you might find some real kernels of value, some real nuggets here from Trevor that you might take notes on or might follow up on. And last little note here before we get going, if there's anything you might want to ask Trevor, uh, let me know. I will figure out whatever the best way is to get y'all connected with him or those things sent his way. It might just be through email, but if you visit the contact page on marshallpruittpodcast.com, probably the easiest way for you to reach out. And for those of you who want to become the next Trevor Green Smiths, making your way to F1, I absolutely know that he would be uh, welcome to help answer whatever he can. And if he isn't, I will threaten him. And by the way, you'll hear me mention more than once his nickname of T-Max. Trevor's not the largest human being uh, by any stretch, but he is fierce with personality and also intelligence. And so he was bestowed with the nickname of T-Max to kind of make up for the lack of big hulking size, but uh, he's a badass nonetheless. So. Let's get going here. So you want to work in Formula One? Well, indeed, hopefully Trevor Greensmith and our little conversation might help clear a little bit of that path for you to follow in the same direction. I believe I have the artist currently known as T-Max, but at least on your birth certificate, <laughs> uh, formally known as Trevor Greensmith on the line. Can you confirm this young man? Allegedly, yes, it is Trevor Greensmith. Now, for those who don't know you, and I feel sorry for those folks because they've been missing just a little ray of sunshine in their life, you uh, you are a fellow product of uh, the Bay Area here, San Francisco-ish Bay Area. A young lad, you and I have had uh, some mutual co-workers together, uh, got to know you years ago when you were part of the Phil Riley 
clan running vintage Formula One cars, working with one of my mentors, John Ennick, the amazing John Ennick. Um, he is amazing. Known you for a while, loved you for a long time. You're currently at Andretti Autosport. You are leaving Andretti Autosport, now finally able to pursue in person your dream of Formula One. Um, not really the time or place to mention which Formula One team you're going to. That actually isn't uh, the news here or what I'm hoping for us to do, Trev. But I would like to talk about your journey to getting here because I know for a fact, because I was a young kid who had dreams of, I wanted to be an aerodynamicist in Formula One. I don't know why aero was the Mm. thing that I chose, but like you, in the same SF Bay Area setting, mid-1980s, that was my dream. Didn't work out uh, with F1, but obviously IndyCar and a bunch of other fun stuff uh, came into my world. But you are someone who, I know that there are many uh, Americans, North Americans, South Americans, you name it, <laughs> who probably have a dream of getting to where you're going to working for teams in Formula One. So I thought it might be cool to talk about that journey, what you've done, and maybe some of that would be instructional or aspirational for them. So why don't we start yeah, at the, the beginning? So Phil Riley, uh, <laughs> man who builds amazing Cosworth DFVs and a 91 cubic inch Miller four-cylinder IndyCar motors and all kinds of things, tells a story of a young Trevor Greensmith having gone through some health challenges uh, walking down the street and hearing the sound of a Cosworth DFV being revved and run out of his garage, I believe home garage, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, that is true, yeah. Brabham BT44, and that being a hook for you. Why don't we start there about where racing and interest came into your world and by chance at least seeing and hearing a gorgeous 1970s Formula One car. Absolutely. Yeah. That was, that was a hallmark moment for sure. That was uh, pretty pivotal. I would say I was probably like 10 or 11. Um, Phil Riley, who I did not know at the time, um, little did I know there was a formula one car lurking, you know, not three blocks away from the house I grew up in. And, you know, one day he, you know, foolishly decides to start the car in his home garage with the garage door cracked open. And this, you know, this cosmic noise erupts from that thing. And I just went running towards it as you would, um, and just stuck my head in the side door of the garage. And, you know, there's this guy and there's this monster sitting on high stands smoking and, uh, you know, that was my, that was my introduction to Phil Riley, who kind of just, you know, out the side of his, you know, vision, saw this kid poking his head through the door and just said, Hey, and, um, you know, as one does when one is 11 years old or so and discovers (laughs) your neighbor, A has a formula one car and B owns, you know, the greatest restoration shop in the world. You know, I, I, he invited me to come have a look at the shop and, you know, walked around and, and I, I did meet John Ennick that day and a few others. And, you know, as you would when you're 11 and you think, you know, the world is your oyster, right? I asked him for a job and he said no. 
you're you're a little too young for this. There's a lot of dangerous things in this building. Go through puberty and, first, uh, kid, then come talk yeah, to me. Yeah, pr- pretty much, yeah. And, you know, so so I kept it on the back burner, you know. It was never a hard no. It was a, you know, come see me when you're, you know, a little older. And, um, you know, high school does what it does. And uh, for me, high school is pretty, pretty damn rough um, and came out the other side of it. And like you said, there were some, uh, there were some pretty serious health challenges along the way and came out of the tail end of, you know, senior year not really knowing what to do with myself. Um, but still with this, you know, pretty deep and abiding passion for, for cars and racing. And once I was truly back on my feet and healthy, the first thing that came into my mind was to, go see Phil. And, uh, I, uh, you know, had a chat with him on the phone and went into the shop and, you know, a few visits later, he and Brian Madden put a broom in my hand and said, you know, go to town basically. Um, it sounds so, familiar to my own introduction where, yeah, I jokingly referred to myself as the Windex engineer because that's all they trusted me with was a little bottle of spray <laughs> cleaner and some paper towels but it, it's a bit of a that's, rite of yeah. passage though right because you it, it having truly is been to phil's shop like you drop a wrench on any of those vehicles and you've just oh caused God. untold zillions of dollars of damage because genuinely not overselling this millions upon millions upon mil like the the cal- the small countries of the world produce less gdp value <laughs> than some of the vehicles and their value in there so you're oh, not absolutely. in some kind of backwater place learning your trade you're being no. entrusted with a broom around zillion dollar priceless motor racing vehicles absolutely and you know it, it was just that it was this you know I, my first few days in there were just spent like you know tiptoeing around and you know hoping not to knock anything over um, but yeah, I mean, that was, that was where you started. And, you know, even within sort of that tight knit barrier racing community that you're familiar with, you know, all those guys that came out of, you know, the, the Berkeley shops in the old days, so to speak, like Griswold and whatnot, you know, that, that position is still affectionately referred to as being the turd, you know, like it's, it sounds terrible when you first start it, but as people within the community, like Dan Marvin and John Anderson will tell you it's probably the best job you'll ever have in some ways because it's all brand new. And if you show enthusiasm and, you know, you work hard and you try to do a good job, people just bestow knowledge upon you constantly. So it's truly a blessing. It's an awesome, it's an awesome job. Um, but yeah, so there is that, no, 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 but there is that aspect of it that you mentioned of the, if you don't piss everybody off and you're one who has the ability to put up with some grief and, you know, look, you're the shop dog, right? That's what you are. Uh, You have opposable thumbs though. So you can be slightly more valuable (laughs) than the shop dog. Uh, But absolutely, if you don't let yourself get kicked around too much and you don't push back too hard, you have a lot of amazing knowledge that folks will rain down upon you over time. And I know that's what you were able to receive here And where I love this story arc for you, Trev, is that you are going to Formula One. You are, and you're not going there doing a meaningless job or insignificant job. 
you are going there doing a very important role. Maybe we can get into a little bit of that a little bit later, but you are starting this whole journey of getting to where you're going by and large, seeing you on the weekends running and helping to prep and look after vintage formula one cars. And again, there are other cars that you ran too. Don't get me wrong, but, uh, I love this aspect, man, because you're going to be putting your hands on the most cutting edge, you name it, Formula One machines ever made here uh, coming up very (laughs) soon. But you're getting your start buried deep into the history of Formula One and understanding these vehicles, assembling these vehicles, running them at such a young age. Tell folks about that, man, because that's really rare. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was a few months in and uh, into being at Riley and company. And uh, I was already was, you know, sort of burgeoning the thought of going to school for motorsport engineering, whether that was going to be in Indiana or overseas. And, uh, you know, within the first few months, you know, Phil trusts me to, you know, start tearing down a Cosworth DFV. Right. And that's, that's Genesis, you know, it's finally you're you know putting your hands on this you know incredible work of art that won 13 world championships in the back of various formula one cars and yeah as the as the you know experience at riley and company unfolded you know there was just more and more trust as you got to learn to do more and more different things and you know by the by the end of it you know, various sub assemblies and putting together gearboxes or doing gear changes at the track or what have you. And you have people like, you know, John Ennick and all these incredible people teaching you all these incredible skills. So by the time that I actually headed overseas to, to college, um, or university rather in England, you know, I had this, uh, this whole other skill set where you, you know, you possessed some knowledge or some, some feel for every part or subassembly on the car. And that was massive. It was super, super helpful. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, going from that to, you know, uh, engineering school was obviously, you know, kind of a hard transition and all of a sudden you have to sort of shift your brain back into, you know, into gear for academia and, uh, you know, luckily I, I was able to spend a couple of winters and summers uh, worth of breaks coming back to Riley and company and continuing to learn. So that was, that was definitely pretty pivotal as well. So let's um, spend a little bit of time here, Trev, because mm-hmm. if we're talking knowledge. If we're talking about, so you want to work in formula one kid, <laughs> you come in, accept the lowest job on offer, do it willfully and happily, learn a Mm -hmm. lot, uh, put yourself in that understudy role mentally, right? There are some folks who think, well, I should go straight to the head of the line. You go, no, not with these kinds of cars. Um, You learn a ton, you gain trust, and there are new levels being unlocked to that trust, right? Okay, don't ever forget where the broom goes but maybe we'll let you hold a wrench in your hand and maybe we'll let you torque the wheels and check full (laughs) throttle and, you know, do a lot of these other things too and get to the point to where you're helping, whether it's with engines and gearboxes and tearing down and putting cars back together. You're running cars on the race weekend, right? So that's really valuable as well. So these are all kind of incremental steps for you where you're 
going from the bottom to having vintage Formula One cars worth frightening amounts of money that you're entrusted with to uh, put out on the track, get the drivers in the cars and, and belted, you know, all the normal things of kind of arrive Absolutely. and drive of invaluable aspect of your learning. And then you realize, and as we'd spoken about years ago when the time was coming, was for you to go and gain university-grade education. Tell folks about some of the, you already mentioned a couple locations, but some of the universities that you considered, where you ended up going, and what you wanted to specialize in. It was also cool to see a tweet from uh, Joseph Newgarden's championship-winning race engineer, also longtime ex-Red Bull F1 man from uh, good old Canadian Gavin Ward, give you yeah. a, uh, a thumbs up on your choice of university. But tell folks about the decision-making, where you looked at, and then what you ultimately chose to do, because you can go and get a lot of shop and track experience. If you're going to move Absolutely. into one of the higher technical roles, engineering roles, probably going to want to bolt uh, some sort of university uh, education on top of that. For sure. I think, uh, you know, I think the main, the main decision was first about going to a college or university at all. Um, because, you know, historically, you know, that's been, there has been another path, especially in, in North America for people to, you know, be the shop kid, um, make their way into mechanic roles and then potentially go from there to being the DAG or the systems engineer data acquisition, and continue to work DAG, one up. of the great acronyms in the sport. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and alternatively, as we're seeing more and more lately, you know, the, al the alternative route, or maybe that now the primary route, perhaps, um, you know, is like you said, to go and pursue, you know, a college or university degree and then, and then make your way in. Um, but yeah, I certainly, I certainly felt like I, you know, regardless, wanted an engineering degree going forward. And, you know, sort of the next juncture to look at, I guess, for me was, do I want to do a highly specialized program, i.e. one with a title like motorsport engineering, like you see at IUPUI or Oxford Brooks, or do you do a mechanical engineering program um, and then try and make your way into racing from there? And to me, I was pretty confident that, you know, racing is where I ultimately wanted to be. And, and certainly, you know, the exposure to being trackside with Riley and company was, you know, critical to that. Um, but yeah, ultimately, once I realized that I wanted to do something, you know, with a, with a specialty, you know, title to the degree, so to speak, I, you know, pretty much, you know, immediately knew that it was either going to be IUPUI or probably going to England. And, um, ultimately my decision was based on a visit that I made to England because mainly because Phil said, you know, if you're going to do this, you should probably go over there and talk to a few people. Um, he connected me with uh, initially with uh, Neil Trundle at McLaren, who Neil is one of the sort of uh, godfathers of the of McLaren as we currently know it. Um, and uh, Phil also connected me with a number of other people within the industry to sort of gain an insight into who they were looking at or what universities they liked. Um, and ultimately, you know, it seemed like Oxford Brooks had the sort of most uh, complete program and the most sort of, um, 
the best ties to the industry. And so that ultimately drove my decision on that front. Um, so yeah, I ultimately um, only applied to IUPUI and Oxford Brooks. And yeah, I decided to go with Brooks, obviously. Um, so that's, yeah, that's how that decision went. <laughs> so at the same time, and I apologize if mm -hmm. my brain's a little bit fuzzy, but seem to recall there being a Cosworth visit and then trackside support uh, with Cosworth. Yeah. I, was That was a part of while you were at university? That's correct. So that was another, I would say that's a step in the critical path, so to speak, where um, after sort of the second year of uh, university, uh, you know, the previous summer and winters, uh, having worked at Riley and Company, it basically started to become apparent to me that, you know, at an English university, you have this very long summer, like four months, uh, summer break, that is. And it became pretty apparent to me that the the next step would be to try and get, you know, to try and transition from, you know, apprenticing as a mechanic in vintage racing to, you know, some kind of engineering role. And, uh, yeah, I had previously on my first visit to, uh, to England to look at schools, I had met Matthew Grant at Cosworth and, um, ultimately Matthew made, uh, made the introduction to Dave Good, who ultimately offered me a summer internship, which I, you know, I jumped at obviously because like, oh my God, working at Cosworth in Northampton, which is this legendary institution, um, yeah, it just made complete sense. And it was just a phenomenal opportunity to dive into the engineering side of things in a practical way. Um, and so primarily that was, I believe the title of that internship was, um, I think it was like a development intern was the title of the role. And um, they, they sent me straight to the dyno um, while they were working on the Nissan LMP1 project at the time. Um, and yeah, again, I, I sort of stuck my head into Dave's office one day and said, you know, Hey, I really appreciate this job and I'm really excited by all this, but if you guys are, are ever going to the track and there's any way in hell that you would send me, I really want to go. And, and so uh, that, response... Hey, that's critical. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that's the message, uh, bell. We need to ring Absolutely. here. You were able to get an internship. You were yep. able to be in a dino cell and a lot of cool stuff, be inside the building, but yeah. made the critical decision to not just say, thank you for the thing. I am in a receiving mindset. I will just sure. wait for whatever you tell me to do, and that's what I'll do, and I'll be a good little shmi. You said... <laughs> Let me try and see if there's more. Let me ask at least. Don't be the guy to just wait and receive and, and be passive. Absolutely. You were proactive. Granted, it's with one of the biggest, most epic failures ever in sports car racing, the front engine, Nissan LM, GTR, <laughs> GTLM, R, Nisma. I never know what the heck. I forget all the letters and acronyms involved. It's got a lot, yes. Cool. Very cool car. Didn't live up to Absolutely. anything. But the, I can, we can say this. The one thing that functioned perfectly, more or less, was that twin-turbo Cosworth-built oh, V6 engine. That was a one shining star. So, Oh, it was a gem. Absolutely. 
So tell but, folks uh, about yeah. that because you have this IndyCar dream, this F1 dream, like, you know, <laughs> you have this open wheel dream and Absolutely. where do you get to go first to exercise some of this on this kind of university upward career path? <laughs> 24 hours of Le Mans with one of the big poop fests you're ever going to imagine with Nissan. But again, the Nissan failures had nothing to do with y'all. But tell folks about that, man, because it's the dream Absolutely. and it's happening. And oh, my it, God, it I sure cannot was. hide far enough in the back of the garage. <laughs> Something like that. I mean, I I think the timing of it was literally like I finished my exams you know, and literally two days later that weekend, I headed up to Northampton and in another week and a half or two later, we were driving down to Lamont for the test. And, um, you know, of course my head's just spinning cause I've just spent a week on a dyno and I have absolutely no idea what I'm looking at. And this is all foreign and new and awesome. And, oh my God, this thing shoots flames and it's so cool. Um, but you know, luckily all the guys on that project at Cosworth were just awesome and super welcoming. And yeah, so we go down to Lamal for the test day and the test days, um, I guess a disaster would be a pretty conservative way of putting it potentially. But, um, you know, I think for my eyes, it was just like all this stuff was so foreign, uh, you know, just the whole professional racing thing was just, you know, was wild. You know, the scale of it all was so impressive, whether it was the garage or the office or how many sets of brakes were in the corner, you know, whatever. It was just like, it was wild. Right. And, you know, you don't have any, you don't have any idea really how, you know, how a pro racing team functions at that level. And so it's all just kind of bewildering. Right. Um, and granted in some ways, you know, that masked some of the flaws of the program, you know, when you're, when you're 20, 20, nothing. And, you know, you're seeing, you know, Lamal for the first time, it's all just such a spectacle. Right. But at the same time, um, you know, that project at Cosworth was, you know, such an awesome project because you have this blank sheet racing engine factory funded. Um, you know, you're using the F1 dinos at Cosworth. You have this team of people with just immense knowledge and wisdom um, you know, that are, that are just doing what they do best. Right. And so it was a phenomenal opportunity. Um, you know, I think, I think that's another thing it's, you know, whether you're already, you know, in college studying and you, you already have hands-on experience or whatever that transition to that first engineering job, you know, that's critical. And it's, it's hard to find that, right. Because you're an unknown quantity, you know, no one's ever heard of you. And you have a couple of years of experience and, you know, at a university level or, you know, hands on or whatever, but like, who cares, right? Like it's, it's a tough, it's a tough transition. Um, and, you know, I think it's really important, right? Like, I think if there's one thing we could plug throughout this conversation is like, you know, I think early on, really any experience that gets you, you know, behind a laptop or at a racetrack or whatever, like that's that's huge. Just, you know, that that's just phenomenally essential. Um, I can share a little bit on this cause I went through it recently and then we're going to, we'll turn it back to you. But with some of the challenges that we've dealt with at home with my wife over the last couple of years, hadn't been to the racetrack, uh, done a lot of reporting, a lot of writing, a lot of everything from home, but the sure. environment where I normally do my work, where it's distracting and pressure filled and timelines and there's right raucous <laughs> environment 
hadn't been there, hadn't done that for a couple of years, was super fortunate, Trev, for my first visit back to a track to do my job, being at the Rolex Monterey Motorsports Reunion, a vintage event. It's awesome. Where there were no crazy deadlines, there's no super pressure. Like, I could ease my way into things, make a bunch of mistakes, which I did, which nobody saw. (laughs) And having been able to do that, truly, I was so thankful because when it came time to get back to my first proper motor race, uh, the Portland IndyCar race, the majority of the nerves and jitters and all that were gone because I had a chance to work them out in a less important environment. Your ability to go to Le Mans as a track support engineer with Cosworth, looking after one of the vehicles in uh, the Cosworth built motor in it, and just a part of that team to do that as an intern, although you weren't new to the racetrack, obviously, but at least kind of in this career, serious career path, this was a big event Mm -hmm. for you. You were able to do that instead of having to learn that day one at big IndyCar Team X or Formula One Team X. So that advice you're offering of, hey, you might be really smart in the majority of what you've done so far. If not everything you've done so far is uh, university-based, please, please, please go get some trackside experience in less consequential settings so that when you rock up to your Red Bulls, Mercedes, or whomever is for day one, you're not going, oh my God, what am I supposed to do? And what, why yeah. am I standing around all these legends? Don't, don't figure it out first day on the job. For sure. And, you know, I think that's, you know, uh, just further to that point, you know, don't necessarily be afraid, like with a Cosworth or an Ilmore or, you know, what have you, don't be afraid for that first uh, opportunity to potentially be, you know, for a manufacturer or, you know, some kind of support role for another series or for a, another car, right? Like the the most important thing is that you get exposure to the tools and the methods, you know, behind whatever it is that's running, right? Like that's that's critical, right? Had I not had the Cosworth opportunity and, you know, worked with data and, and dove into, you know, uh, Cosworth software and all that, you know, that would never have led to the next, the next couple of opportunities. So, um, which, yeah, I mean, you know, within that same season as the, as the Nissan program was, you know, pretty clearly winding down and, uh, university, was about to start back up. Somebody basically offered me a, a DAG role um, in the Renault in the World Series by Renault on the on that sports that prototype sports car spec series that they were doing at the time. Um, and yeah, that was that was the next critical step, and it just sort of naturally, you know, you know, sort of materialized because somebody was like, "Hey, you've." been behind a laptop you know what pi toolbox looks like i know you from vintage racing i'm race engineering this car that was david luff aka luffy thank you david um and it was like hey jump on in let's see what happens and you know and all of a sudden you're a dag you know and that's that's kind of how these i know you you're familiar with this but yeah that's kind of how these things go they just start rolling after that it was part of my growth and education back in the day too, going from mechanic to a guy who knew computers a little bit and being trusted with doing uh, back then the DAG role, the data acquisition geek. 
Absolutely. definitely looked down upon if we're talking macho hierarchy within a racing team for sure you know <laughs> you, you could not be more dismissed you know the person putting Absolutely. out napkins and and sporks in hospitality <laughs> held more street cred than the dag but nonetheless hey if you weren't afraid to do it and that was Absolutely. often that was one of the things that came to mind for me like, hey, Absolutely. I know computers a little bit. I'm a pretty, okay, I can figure that out. And yeah, this isn't like the highly respected role in the team, but I'm willing, everybody already thinks I'm a dummy, so that's fine, but I'm willing to do that. <laughs> and that will hopefully then lead to other things, which it did uh, in time, race engineering and whatever else. But want to just stop here for just a second, mention another great thing that you have opened up for folks, and that is, so you have this great intern opportunity with Cosworth that gets you trackside. That then leads to something else while you're still going to university and you're doing sure. some dagging over here and then you get another opportunity to do a little bit of this over there. There's two things happening that are really critical for you. You're getting multiple forms of work experience, even if it's kind of doing similar to same as things, but you're getting more experience. That's, building your value to a team that might want to hire you at some point in time in the future. For sure. But you're getting another thing, which is really important. And I would say massively under considered or reported, which I'd love for you to speak on. And that is cultures. You're going into unique, uh, garage temperature attitude approach sure. at Lamar with the Nissan team. Then you're going here with this, team and then you're going there and hey uh the team owners and all three very different personalities and this one's really totally. prickly this one's kind of fun to talk to this one over here is a drunk uh hey the chief mechanic says don't you dare touch that car without my permission i've had that told <laughs> to me before too right as as a data guy like sure. again don't don't even look at the car without my permission other one says hey turn it on do whatever you want play all day Run that yeah, through the absolutely. list and you start to race engineers what they want from you and, and their sure. interaction styles. Drivers, right? Getting to listen to drivers. They'll give oh, you feedback. For sure. And you understand quality feedback versus non-quality feedback. Different driving styles, right? There are those who Definitely. can tell you everything like they're a super computer. There are others who almost don't remember what just happened, but they may have gone quickly. What you're getting, being immersed in more than one team, more than one event, is allowing you to absorb so many different things in terms of personalities, team cultures, how to navigate folks. Okay, hey, I recognize you. You're type A, type B, type whatever. All right, this sure. is you, that part that you're getting that has nothing to do with computers, nothing to do with engineering, uh, the mechanical side, like tell folks about how that honestly was so important for you because when it came time to go to IndyCar, you kind of knew the deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that's for sure true. I mean, it was, you know, it's kind of a cultural adventure in every workplace, right? And, you know, to go from Cosworth and, you know, see how Nissan operated, you know, and then go from there to this small Austrian team. 
um, in World Series and, you know, see how that goes. And then, you know, the next year at, the, at an Irish LMP2 team, and it was like you, exactly that. You just sort of, uh, each time you would sort of, you know, get on a plane and show up and not really have any idea what you were about to get into. And you have to adapt and you have to be open-minded and, um, you know, not not be afraid to, you know, express your enthusiasm, but also maybe hold back a little and sort of get the lay of the land for a while before you, you know, dive in head first, right? Like, you know, ultimately one of the best things about racing is that, you know, you have this group of people who are usually all quite competitive and working toward a common goal, but, you know, the way they all get there is pretty different. Um, and for sure, you know, there's been scenarios where you're, you look around and you're like, wow, this is an amazing group of people. And, you know, the attitude is positive and, you know, this is, this is all pretty great. And then there's, yeah, there's moments where it's like, oh my God, how did we, how did this car even get on the racetrack? Like you, you know, there's, <laughs> it goes, it goes either way and everything in between. Right. Um, but ultimately, yes. I mean, it, it did mean that, you know, when I graduated and um, got my first opportunity in IndyCar with, with Dale Coin Racing, yeah, I sort of, you know, it was all foreign because IndyCar was, you know, brand new to me except as a spectator. And, um, but yeah, at the same time, you know, you'd sort of seen and been in enough and just enough, you know, different team environments that, you know, you could sort of take the temperature and, and acclimate pretty quickly and, you know, find your groove. And, um, it, you know, it certainly helped that it was a, a fantastic group of people and, you know, it was a, a very welcoming group and you know coin is um you know very much like a family um but you know at the same time yeah it was it was uh i think in some ways it was actually also a wonderfully humbling experience because you know i came off of my like three ish seasons of dagging various things and thought yeah you know i understand race cars and then you know you come to indycar and it's like oh no i don't just kidding um so that was awesome um and especially you know my first race engineer there was was michael cannon who i know we've both both worked with and um cannon's been an excellent mentor and was a you know was super uh understanding but also willing to answer every single dumb question i had um and uh you know that that helps a lot and that's a again those are unique situations that you can't uh, you can't design or can't you know necessarily position yourself into. Um, but the but again the bottom line is that wherever you go you know you have to be open minded you know you have to potentially not be afraid to express your enthusiasm and ask ask questions that will potentially make you look kind of dumb. Um, but oftentimes you'll get really enlightening answers and that's what matters. So when you were getting ready to try and land that first full-time job and got connected with coin certainly didn't hurt. And this is, it's not an intangible. It's actually a hundred percent tangible for you, but it's one of those things that not every person can bank on. And that being Michael Cannon, as you mentioned, was one of my main race engineering mentors a long, long time ago in junior open wheel racing in Form Atlantics and Indy Lights. And, you know, he would, yeah. uh, he would learn me things because uh, I too wanted to know <laughs> more. Uh, worked with Enic back when I was a teenager. 
uh, as a race car mechanic and John being very open to telling me things and yelling at me when I did things wrong and whatnot. But those are two relationships that certainly helped me. We have those relationships in common. Can't say that every person who wants to work in F1 or IndyCar, wherever is going to have that kind of linkage where you go, Oh, well, uh, I worked with Phil Riley at Riley. For John sure. Ennick was there. John Ennick used to be a mechanic or chief mechanic on a car that Michael Cannon engineered. And so here's the step from where I am today to where I want to be. Not everybody's going to have that, but sure. there was something smart about your decision and deciding to go to coin in that you knew of Cannon, but you also knew, and this is, I would say another message that while doors could open for some folks at a variety of teams in F1 or wherever, there's value Trevor and speak on this of understanding who's there waiting for you, for you Absolutely. to learn from, even if you don't know them 1%, there are some teams where you go, yeah, okay, I could go there. I don't know if so-and-so and such-and-such such are the ones I really want as my mentors. You chose sure. well, Craig Hampson being there, Olivier Boisson, Michael Cannon. Like if we're talking about the well of engineering knowledge, yeah, it's about as deep as could be. Definitely. I mean, I think that's a great piece of criteria that's not often talked about is, you know, if you're sizing up opportunities and granted, you, you know, opportunities tend to be pretty limited when you're starting out. Um, that, that should absolutely play a role is like, who can be my allies there and who, who is there most importantly, maybe that wants to pass on knowledge and wisdom to the next generation, you know? And so, you know, I think for sure going in there, knowing that you had, you know, a, a number of people there that, you know, not only are, you know, have incredible resumes, but also, you know, who seem to want to teach and who seem to want to pass on the knowledge um, yeah, absolutely. That's critical. I, you know, I wish I could say that that had been forefront in my mind when I, you know, accepted that opportunity, but, you know, it was kind of, again, one of those sort of lucky moments where you realize, you know, wow, I've stumbled into something amazing here. Um, it's also for sure testament to the fact that, you know, on a smaller team in any given series, you're going to be exposed to a lot more. You know, there's less specialty, there's fewer people, you know, fewer cooks in the kitchen, so to speak. Um, you know, so that that absolutely helps. And so, you know, I would certainly encourage, you know, people getting into the sport like, you know, again, don't be afraid to start out in a lower series or at a smaller team in a bigger series because, you know, the level of exposure is just that much higher. Right. Like that's that's huge. Um Absolutely. Yeah. It also, and I could not agree more. And that was almost always my approach and desire. The majority of IndyCar teams that I worked for were smaller. Uh, I think the biggest that I worked for would be described as midsize. Uh, never one of the, the big giant teams knowing <clears throat> that also, I mean, if you're not opting if you're not trying to work for one of the big, big teams, you're also knowing that victories are probably going to be somewhat infrequent. Championships are going to be harder won uh, working for a smaller sure. midfield team. But my personality 
was one where I didn't want to be pigeonholed as the right front suspension mechanic or the sure. name that this very specific technical role or whatever uh, wanted to and enjoyed doing multiple things. And so for the majority of my career, that's what I was able to do. And so at a smaller to midfield team, to your point, you are going to be asked to do more because they have fewer dollars and fewer bodies. And so just talking about learning, developing oneself as a professional in motorsports, if you know that from birth you want to be a race engineer for Ferrari, cool, there's a path to get directly there. If you're someone that's a little more curious, might want to pick up some other skills along the way, maybe on the path to becoming that race engineer uh, at Ferrari might look at starting out with some of the smaller teams, as you mentioned, why don't we pivot a little bit, Trevor? Cause I don't want to put folks to sleep sure. too much with my voice. Um, <laughs> so you have invaluable lessons taking place at coin. You have success there and an opportunity comes to join Andretti Autosport, definitely moving from, you know, the, the, 99 cent store to uh the big high-end store you're moving to one of indycar's traditional big three teams with andretti autosport getting to work alongside uh the great crazy and insane jeremy millis working as part of (laughs) alexander rossi's uh entry there tell us about that step up when did you feel at coin that you had learned enough to be confident in stepping up to a big championship contender like coin. Cause it's not just the, Hey, you know, I might try something different. You got to get to sure. a place where you feel mm-hmm. you could do it. When did you reach that? And for those who haven't been through the process, share as much as you're comfortable with. Tell us about that process. Is it an email? Sure. Do you, do you leave like, freshly baked cookies at Michael Andretti's doorstep. Uh, <laughs> walk us through that. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting one. I, you know, I think it's one of those things in some ways where um, sometimes you have to maybe take an opportunity that you don't actually feel entirely prepared for because it's, you know, it's there and the timing is right. And, um, you know, I think in hindsight, I wasn't entirely ready to make the make the step from, you know, DAG or systems engineer to performance engineer or assistant engineer. Um, but the opportunity came along and, you know, I, I felt like, you know, that it, it was sort of this incredible thing where, you know, I couldn't quite believe that that, you know, that offer was being extended. Um, I think part of it was that after, you know, roughly sort of year two and a half at, at coin, I was, you know, starting to think, okay, you know, how long, how long do you remain in this position before you move up? And, you know, where do you go from here? And so I had, I had started, you know, I had started talking to some of the people that I trusted within the industry about that, like, you know, Hey, what do you think I should do here? You know? Um, and, you know, through some of those dialogues, it became apparent to me 
you know, to, to make the, make the next step was a going to be hard and be probably going to take another few years, or I could potentially maybe even go back to school and get a master's degree. Um, that was, that was an option that was pretty, pretty forefront of my mind because I sort of, you know, and again, this is another topic entirely, but I sort of looked around the room and looked around, you know, the paddock and was like, well, what the hell separates me from all these other, you know, intelligent driven, you know, high quality DAGs and systems engineers and, you know, how to, how did the current crop of performance engineers make it to where they are? Yeah, it was definitely starting to become a case of, you know, trying to figure out how to bridge that gap. was thinking about master's degree through someone that I had worked with overseas. My CV got, my resume that is, got past, um, it, it kind of jumped the pond and then came back and uh, landed at Andretti. And um, which was, you know, fortuitous, obviously. But again, I think the critical step that process was the thing that made Andretti, uh, you know, potentially trust me to make the jump to the performance engineer role was that Coin had afforded this opportunity to grow within the DAG or systems engineer role, um, which you know was mainly due to the people that were there. You know, the the Canons and you know Craig Hampson, Olivier Ross Bunnell especially were all you know, um, we're all, you know, teaching and imparting wisdom and slowly passing more and more responsibility my way. Um, and so when it came time to talk to, uh, the folks at Andretti, uh, I was, you know, I had sort of this extra, you know, knowledge base of, you know, quite a few things that were sort of critical to the performance engineer role that I was already familiar with. Um, and that's that's probably ultimately what made the difference in the process of making that transition. Um, so again, I guess uh, you know I'll st this is maybe I'll steal your thunder for a moment here. That here's a message for you, um, but uh, I think that's that's another thing is you know whatever role you're in, if you're looking toward the next thing or you're looking to grow, you know you have to you have to be willing to potentially take on some more responsibility keep asking you know pointed questions and keep expressing your enthusiasm and ultimately people will give you you know more tasks more responsibility and impart start to impart the knowledge that you need for the next stage right so i would certainly uh i and again like you said i think it's important within any role to you know keep your goal in mind and, and keep in mind the things that you can be doing right now to, you know, help position yourself toward that. And I think one other thing I might bring up at this point is, you know, me, and again, this is a bit ironic coming from me because I really haven't been doing this very long, but, you know, try and keep sort of a long-term vision going if possible. Um, you know, I think if you're, if you're only thinking in the immediate, if you're only thinking about, you know, I want to win a race or I want to do X, Y, and Z, you know, that may be kind of a limited scope. It's important to think a couple years out um, at least. And, you know, especially if you're entering college or, or entering your first role, you know, don't think that that's going to be the stepping stone to your ultimate goal right away. You know, it's okay to think a couple moves ahead and maybe you don't know what those moves are, but you have to know that you, you know, you, you have to be ready to pivot potentially i'll throw um, this in 
as a sidebar related sidebar think it was the end of the 99 season and was not going to be continuing with the same team the following year um came back to the bay area and spent the off season working for a friend uh at sears point with the shop uh serini motorsports john serini motorsports um looking after spec racer fords and so going from putting my hands on amazing indie cars and being involved there in an engineering capacity to turning wrenches and busting knuckles on possibly the lowest aspiration <laughs> uh, club racing car ever devised. It just looks like human sadness with four wheels, right? Um, could not have been a greater juxtaposition of where I was a, a week before to where I was for the rest of the off season earning, you know, I, I was always pretty good at saving money uh, during the season. So this was just kind of, keeping things ticking along, covering expenses. But um, by doing that, and again, it's not as if I was going to learn anything new about dynamics or engineering sure. or anything else, but simply by doing that and working with uh, the person who owned those cars, the client who owned those cars, a guy by the name of Mike Smith, who owned a large document storage business, and spending the off-season going to Thunder Hill and Sears Point, Laguna Seca, just doing these club races and listening to Mike talk about business. I never learned those kinds of things. And so through awesome. this weird little thing that had nothing about getting me to my final destination of where I wanted to be in motor racing, just the off-the-beaten-path type stuff that you're referring to, hey, don't necessarily lock yourself into the one and only way to get there. Don't be afraid to go and try and do some weird things where maybe you don't even fully understand the benefit Absolutely. that you're going to get back. But just listening to Mike and the little business things that I picked up have helped inform me so much in life uh, afterwards that I look back at that making, you know, pennies on the dollar by comparison of doing the stuff in the off season. Invaluable. Sure. So I'll give you a big thumbs up there. Well, let's close on one or two things, Trev. Sure. Tell folks about moving from a small-ish midfield team like Coin to a raging monster like Andretti, which has entries in 97 different motor racing series and so on and so forth. Exaggerating a, a wee bit, but culturally, <laughs> fitting in, uh, reading the room, understanding that here you might not be asked to do as many things that you were naturally expected to do at a coin. Tell folks about stepping up to that big team and how sure. you also had to adapt and adjust yourself while there. Yeah. I mean, I would certainly sum it up as uh, yeah. Culture shock. Um, it certainly was that it was, um, you know, it was like nothing I had ever really seen or experienced. And, you know, certainly it could not be two more different environments, you know, coin and Andretti. Um, and yeah, ultimately, you know, there was a lot of time sort of spent just getting your bearings and, you know, kind of hiding at your desk, you know, waiting for somebody to 
say something to you, but at the same time, it's still a racing team. And ultimately it still has the same level of, you know, sort of enthusiasm and camaraderie and, you know, pretty quickly, you know, people in the office were, you know, cracking jokes or making fun of you or whatever it was. And, you know, you felt kind of at home because it's still a racing team and people are still, you know, passionate and bonkers about the whole sport. And, um, that certainly helped, uh, you know, as Jeremy likes to remind me, I, I walked into that opportunity without actually knowing which car and which crew and which engineer I was going to be working with. Um, but you know, it ultimately didn't matter because it was a step up in position, you know, it was stepping into a much larger team, which I knew, you know, again, you're maybe being exposed to a sort of a less wide breadth of things, but also, you know, more resources and more series and more people. And, um, that's also super important, obviously. Um, so in the end, you know, it was great. And, you know, there was certainly, um, an amount of, uh, you know, fortune and luck to, you know, going in at a time when, there was, you know, movement and, you know, lots of cars being run and, you know, by some miracle, uh, you know, you end up working with Jeremy and, uh, Alexander Rossi and it's, you know, yeah, it was, it was all kind of bewildering, you know, because again, you've come from, you know, this sort of family like small team, you're in this huge building with, you know, a hundred and something people, you're not quite sure where you're going to land. You're not quite sure, you know, what your role, what, what your role is ultimately going to be. Who is my race engineer? Who is my driver? Who's my crew? And the pieces fall into place and you just get to sort of step back and go like, wow, how did, how did I end up here? Um, but at the same time, you know, again, you know, even within the first few weeks, you know, you express your enthusiasm and, you know, maybe, yeah, maybe you, once again, you're, you're still kind of taking the temperature of the room, so to speak, you know, and learning the landscape, but, you know, ultimately, you know, it kind of works out. You have to, you have to still be enthusiastic and, you know, also sort of know your own limitations, but also, you know, be willing to sort of expose yourself to those situations where, you know, you might go to your race engineer, you might go to the technical director and be like, Hey, I don't necessarily know anything about this subject, but I'm really interested in it. I'm really passionate to, you know, learn more about it. And more often than not, you'll be pretty surprised by the response because, you know, keep in mind, these are all people that have been in that situation themselves. Um, I think that's important to remember. And ultimately I think everybody, you know, you might, you know, catch, catch some flack about it once in a while, you know, for being overly enthusiastic or maybe being called a race fan once in a while, but ultimately we are all race fans. Um, and it's important to remember that. And, you know, when people see genuine enthusiasm, you know, drive and interest, you know, they, they, they want to stoke that fire. Um, and I think that's really important to remember. Stop exposing yourself, by the way, you did hear that from the judge not too long ago. So, um, <laughs> but kidding aside, Let's talk about one more thing uh, on the Andretti side and then move to uh, this desire to reach the place you wanted to get to from the beginning, that being Formula One. So sure. at COIN, uh, you, we've mentioned all the names. 
a immensely strong engineering team, but not overflowing with engineering personnel, right? Everybody was basically a super high performer, vast amounts of knowledge that in and of itself in a smaller team is what allowed them to get by without having to hire a lot of extra folks. Then you move to Andretti Autosport where there's, you know, at minimum uh, two to three engineers per car times four full-time cars get to the speedway and you've got extra cars there. And I mean, you have, you have almost a football team uh, in terms of bodies that could be playing strictly on the engineering side. Tell folks about adjusting to that because that is something that I think everyone readily associates with Formula One. Wow, look at all the people sitting on the timing stand, uh, the Pratt sure. Perch out there. That's a lot of engineering knowledge, a lot of subdivided <laughs> roles, right? Not everything's rolled up just into the race engineer and a DAG and off you go. So you've had a chance with at least the, the vast array of bodies and technical director and damper specialist and gearbox dyno ace and blah, blah, blah. You've had a chance to work in this big, holy cow sized engineering group, engineering debriefs and such. Tell folks about that and getting accustomed to that because indeed you're going to be doing that here in Formula One in that kind of big collaborative group environment. Sure. I mean, it, it's tough at first, I, for sure. You know, once again, there's just so many people and there's so many names to learn and, you know, so many, you know, interesting things going on. You kind of don't even really know where to look at first, right? Like there's, you're sort of submerged in this, you know, vast wealth of information and knowledge and resources. And absolutely, it's it's difficult to know what to do or who to talk to at first. But um, yeah, it, it was just a matter of sort of slowly finding my bearings and learning who to talk to about which subject. And, you know, ultimately, once you were on a car crew, and you, you know, had a had a race engineer and you know, you slowly come out of your shell and you, you slowly get, you know, less afraid to ask certain questions of people. And once again, you're sort of, you know, again, if you've been exposed to multiple teams and crews and personalities and so forth, you, you, you maybe, you know, need to use some discretion and take the temperature of each individual person as you approach them. But, you know, ultimately it's important to just, you know, try and be humble, try and be enthusiastic and, you know, don't be afraid to ask questions. Um, but yeah, for sure. I mean, it was, you know, it's, um, it's a lot of, it's a, it's a lot of resource. It's a ton of knowledge to try and, you know, tap into. But again, I think part of, part of what helped with that maybe was, you know, ultimately realizing, you know, okay, what are the things that I need to do, you know, in my, in my daily role, but also, you know, how do I do it as well as possible and as efficiently as possible and you, in order to do that at a large team, you have to lean on the, on the people who, you know, have the knowledge or have the specialty or whatever, and, you know, lean on your immediate colleagues. And, uh, you know, luckily, you know, everyone there was super helpful with that. And, um, you know, it's a, it was, it's a great group of people. And, you know, once again, you're, you're all working toward a common goal and yes, you know, ultimately they are also your competitors, but, um, which again is an interesting dynamic, but yeah, I think it's, you know, once again, it's important to, 
I guess in some ways this also speaks to sort of attacking individual subjects or tasks, you know, in, in the right order, you know, like it's, it's having your priorities straight and, you know, what do you need to make it to the next session or do, you know, do your job as well as possible. There's this huge wealth of information out there. There's all these resources and tools. They're not all the right one for the job. And you have to ultimately try and, you know, figure out what it is that you actually need or how to derive an answer and answer the question, get to the next session, you know, and that's, again, that's a theme throughout any, throughout all roles in motorsport, you know, there are, there are pretty hard time, time constraints in this industry, you know, there's no, there's no delaying a session, there's no delaying a race. And so ultimately being able to boil things down to the essential problem, and, you know, the sort of most direct route to the answer, that's, that's critical. And again, that's where the people around you um, come in, you know, and being able to figure out who to talk to or where to look or what tool to use. That's, that's a huge part of this whole game. Absolutely. Let's close on this, Trev. So you put in, what was it? Five years in IndyCar? I apologize if I'm off on the count, but. Four and a bit. Yeah. Four and a bit. Um, put in a, a decent amount of time learning traversed from a, a great, introduction to big time motor racing with coin moved up to Andretti Autosport, big spotlight, big expectations, tons of pressure, big well of knowledge as we've discussed, right? A lot of people there, your approach to things certainly helped, uh, being humble, being willing to be scoffed at, laughed at, you name it. I, what you're asking me this? I figured you learned that on day one and you go, no, please. Yes. I'm dumb. You know, make me wear the dunce cap, whatever, but tell me, give me the answer so I can be smarter. Like that willingness it's infectious, right? Now, granted, not everybody is going to take to that. There's some who, uh, have no time, uh, for someone asking questions. They think they should already know, but again, you, you find your way and find out who, uh, will indeed answer those without uh, holding everything against you. Then this opportunity, then this dream that you've had, this thing that you've wanted of getting to Formula One starts to become more pressing. Tell me about this, about the, okay, I know I want to, uh, how do I open this door? Uh, this is something that, again, you're about to start this thing you've been dreaming of and working towards for a really long time, despite still being a very young man. But where does this pivot from a dream to how do I start turning this into action and seeing how I might get there? Absolutely. Well, I think it's important to, uh, you know, sort of preface this with, you know, I, this is not the uh, perhaps typical route into, into F1 from outside. Um, and I, I guess, you know, maybe at some point it will be important to discuss what that, what that might be. But I think it's one of those things where, again, it was sort of long-term vision where, you know, from the start, this has always been, you know, sort of one of, one of the ultimate goals. And, um, again, it was, it was not clear what that path was going to ultimately be. 
but I always sort of kept it, you know, not, not in the back of my mind, but, you know, somewhere in the middle <laughs> about, you know, okay, you know, if this is one of the ultimate goals, you know, how do I, how do I get there? And to be honest, it was just sort of keep, um, try and keep a, you know, one finger on the pulse of, you know, what's available over there and, and who's moving around how and when. And um, also, you know, once again, keeping keeping your whole contact book alive and your whole network going. Um, and, you know, ultimately, once again, you know, leaning on your friends and the people you trust and saying, hey, you know, if anything comes along and you think that there's a chance, tell me. Um, and I would say, you know, in, in, uh, to be perfectly honest with you, Marshall, I, I was, you know, somewhat in a state of mind of, you know, okay, this is, this is getting increasingly distant, this possibility. Um, you know, here I've been in, in IndyCar for four years that kind of, you know, tells the whole industry what my intentions are, um, so to speak. And, you know, I may, I may just have to let the F1 thing go. And that was, that was honestly starting to become a pretty real possibility. Um, and, you know, again, you know, life does what it does and somebody, you know, pokes you and says, Hey, there's, there's this role available for performance engineer. You should probably apply for that. Um, and, you know, I sort of was, you know, <laughs> a bit reticent to, you know, expose myself to, you know, failure again. Um, but ultimately, you know, I, I, I sent in an application and uh, got on the phone with, you know, a number of, a number of friends who have, who have helped over the years and, and gave, given some key advice. Um, I should definitely shout out to Gabriel Elias, who is, uh, who is writing for Racer uh, sometimes as well. Uh, Gabe, Gabe has always provided solid advice, and that's the thing. You need people to tell you once in a while, like, hey, you need to throw your hat in the ring. Like, don't be afraid. And, um, you know, and you, <laughs> you also need people to be able to read over resumes and cover letters when you, when you sort of write these things or are ready to send things off, and you're like, I have no idea what I'm doing here. Like, I'm, you know, I don't know if I'm completely out to lunch or not, um, but ultimately, you know, as a result of, you know, the, you know, the years of experience in IndyCar and other things, the people, you know, and, and trust and the people that know and trust you and the experiences along the way. And, you know, and again, all the little experiences, like we've talked about that you, you weren't expecting or didn't know at the time that they would be valuable for the future you know, ultimately that all kind of comes together and here we are. Um, <laughs> and so you, it's, it's one of those, you remained vigilant, even though it felt like, as you said, things were getting farther away from For becoming sure. a reality, but this isn't something you gave up on. And funnily enough, opportunity opens up. And what I love about this is it's not, Hey, that's great. You started at the bottom on the engineering side in IndyCar and worked your way up to a pretty decent role, but Hey, this is formula one. You're going to be using the little air blaster to clean keyboards on the engineer's laptops. <laughs> um, you're coming in at a very important, as you mentioned, performance engineer level, 
which says something, right? It says that you can go and work for some team in a series that isn't F1, but operates at a ridiculously high level. And Absolutely. the skills you learn there, as evidenced by you, uh, would certainly be considered um, as transferable and, and equitable uh, to what you're going to need to do in F1. Obviously, you're going to learn a ton of things. You're going to have a million new resources at your disposal. You're going to be uh, you know, learning, drinking from the proverbial fire hose. But I Definitely. think that's another thing, too, that's really cool. Okay, this is where you want to go. This is the mountaintop. Don't ever stop trying to get there, but don't think Absolutely. you can't prepare yourself somewhere else for that. And there's validation to uh, this this methodology of yours uh, with where you're going. Definitely. I, I think that's true. And I think, you know, it's also important to potentially point out that both of the sort of conventional paths to F1 are super valid, right? Like the experiential path, which I've been on, um, you know, continues to function, um, you know, on both sides of the pond, so to speak, you know, whether it's engineers going into Formula One from the latter series in Europe or from the higher, you know, echelons of, you know, North America or international racing, but also, um, you know, from sort of the, the more academic path, so to speak, where people, you know, go through, do a bachelor's, then do a master's, and then, um, you know, whether or not they do a year-long placement or internship in F1 during their bachelor's degree or do um, a graduate scheme after they complete their master's, that's also a really excellent route into F1 that has served sort of both sides really well. Um, but, you know, for sure, it's it's one of those things where either either direction you take or there are, you know, directions in between and, and, you know, those that we have no idea about or whatever, you know, yeah, keep, keep your goal in mind, you know, keep, keep your finger on the pulse, so to speak. And, you know, don't stop. I think that's the most important part. Perhaps. Don't stop. Perhaps the Trevor Greensmith story coming to Netflix in 2020 yeah, something or right Yeah, that's right. Meh. Yeah. Kind of try well, it and know, stuff and it might work and whatnot. I, you know, it's, that's the thing. I mean, it's as you and I have both seen throughout our time in this industry, you know, crazy, unpredictable things happen for, for good and bad, but you know, to remain, you know, keep your eyes up and keep your contact book alive. And, you know, pretty much anything can happen. I think we've both seen that. So absolutely. It's, it's, it's most important to just, you know, keep going, keep your eyes on the prize, so to speak. And, you know, once again, lean on the people you trust, lean on your friends, keep asking intelligent questions and don't be afraid to show your enthusiasm. That's, that's great advice, my man. Well, I'm happy for you. I'm sad. I'm not going to get to see your smiling cherubic face um, in the IndyCar paddock. Uh, and oh, boy. We're going to have to find someone else whose first name starts with the letter T and pass on the T-Max, at least IndyCar T-Max, oh, to them. Right? That Have you done that yet? That's not job done if you haven't. So I, I have not, I admit. Do your do, do the folks you're you're heading to an F one know your T Max? Are they aware that they're receiving a I, bona fide personality? 
you know, I don't know. I'll have to I'll have to bring that up. Okay. Yeah, that'll be an important first meeting. Definitely. Next year, next year at the US Grand Prix at wherever. I'm going to make sure if it's not me, it'll be someone. I'll pay someone. Get a big <laughs> white bed sheet and some black spray paint and we're putting up a giant T-Max across from pit lane across from your team to embarrass oh the living poop out of you. But make sure that folks know <laughs> T-Max is in the house. Uh, challenge accepted. I, I look forward to it. Happy for you, brother. Congratulations to you. And uh, yeah, can't wait to watch this journey. So thanks for taking some time, Trevor Greensmith. Thank you, Marshall. And that was our pal, Trevor Greensmith. So you want to work in Formula One. Hopefully he was uh, able to shed some light on whatever questions you might have. And as I mentioned and offered in the opening, if you have any things you might want to pose to him about how you might get there or follow similar directions at whatever stage of life you might be in, hit the uh, marshallpruittpodcast.com contact page and send me a note, and I'll be sure to forward that on to our man. So thanks to you for listening. Thanks to Trev for taking some time here, our man T-Max. And also thanks once again to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com.